I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And the passage that has been assigned to me is really what I would regard as the signature text for expository preaching. If you are aware of what it is to preach the Word of God, this is a text, no doubt, with which you are very familiar. But I think it would serve us all well just to be reminded again one more time of what is contained in these verses. I want to begin by reading the passage. I want to set it before your eyes and your heart, and we will spend our time together walking through this wonderful text. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The year is 67 A.D., and the Apostle Paul has come to the end of his life. For 30 years, he has preached the Word of God, but now there will be no more sermons. He finds himself imprisoned in Rome, in a hole in the ground, in the dreaded Mamertine prison. He he is contained like a caged animal, and within weeks, if not days, his head will be severed at the outskirts of Rome, on the Ocean Way. These are the last words to come from the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian who has ever lived, arguably the greatest preacher who has ever lived other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. This is His last communication with the outside world. This is the last chapter of the last epistle He will ever write. This is no time to mince words. This is no time to address secondary matters. This is a time to put out what is primary, not what is peripheral. This is the time to speak to Timothy regarding what is most important. Last words should be lasting words. And the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what Paul says to Timothy is the main thing. He is to preach the Word. For three decades, Paul has been unashamed to preach the Word of God 
and it has cost him dearly from the very beginning. He preached in Damascus, and they tried to to do away with him. He preached in Jerusalem, and they attempted to put him to death. He he preached in Lystra, and they, they stoned him and dragged him out of town and left him for dead. And he came back to consciousness and went back into Lystra and preached again. Everywhere Paul went, he was unashamed to preach the Word of God. And wherever he went, it seemed like he created a riot. Whenever he went into a town, he might as well have just gone straight to jail because that's where he would end up. As Paul writes these last words, the baton of gospel preaching is being passed down from one generation to the next, from a spiritual father to a spiritual son, to Timothy, and also to every young Timothy who is among us here today, and every elder Timothy who is here. In passing down this baton, nothing must change. The mission remains the same. The message remains the same. The method remains the same. It's just the messenger is changing. As Paul has been unashamed to preach, so now must Timothy be unashamed to preach. And I want you to know that this gospel baton that was passed down from Paul to Timothy has now been passed down through the centuries to you and me. It was passed down from Paul to Timothy, to Athanasius and Augustine, to Wycliffe and Huss, to Luther and Calvin, to Ridley and Latimer, to Bunyan and Owen, to Edwards and Whitfield, to Spurgeon and Ryle, to Lloyd-Jones and and Sproul, and this gospel baton, if you've been called to preach, has been placed squarely in your hands, and it has blood, sweat, and tears on this baton. As a great price has been paid to advance this message down to this present hour, and we must not drop this baton. We must own it. We must embrace it. We must herald the Word of God and with our dying breath pass it on like Paul to the next generation. These final words come in the form of a charge from Paul to Timothy. These are Timothy's marching orders for the rest of his life. It is binding upon Timothy's conscience and upon his life, just as it is you and me. I want us to walk through this passage yet again, and I want to divide it out into four headings, and I want you to track with the mind and the passion of Paul as he passes this down to Timothy. I want you to note first the seriousness of this charge. That is in verse 1, and this charge could not be any more serious. It comes with a forceful and urgent tone. Paul begins by saying, I solemnly charge you. This verb is drawn from the the world of the military. It is an order. It is a command from a higher officer to a lower subordinate. And it comes to Timothy 
in such a way that it's not an option. It is not a suggestion. It is an authoritative, imperative command with which Timothy is being charged. And then to heighten this seriousness, he adds, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, could could anything be more gripping than this? In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, as though this has come down from them through Paul to Timothy, that there is a, a divine authority about this as it comes with apostolic authority, as though God is watching on, as though Jesus Christ Himself is is watching this mantle of, of preaching being passed down, as it were, from Elijah to Elisha, from, from Paul to, to Timothy, with the Trinity, the Godhead, observing this. And then to heighten the seriousness of this even more, Paul then weights it more heavily by saying, who is to judge the living and the dead? Not not only is Jesus Christ observing this in God the Father, but Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And this includes Timothy. Whether Timothy is is alive at the time of the return of Christ, or whether he is dead and will appear at the end of the age, it will be Jesus Christ who, who will judge the preaching ministry of, of Timothy. This word judge, krino, it means to separate. There will be at the end of the age a, a, a separation in Timothy's ministry. There will be a separation of, uh, of the good from the bad, the true from the false, as Timothy will stand at the divine tribunal. And then to heighten the seriousness of this even more, Paul continues to add weight to this charge, and he says, and by his appearing and his kingdom, certainly referring to the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ who could come at any moment, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This could happen at any moment for Timothy. There is no room for procrastination. This comes with a sense of urgency and the immediacy of the moment that Timothy must give full compliance to what will follow. And after the return, Christ will establish His kingdom here upon the earth and then usher in the eternal state. And what Timothy will do for God and for Christ, it must be done now It cannot be put off until later. This verse, verse 1, establishes the seriousness of this charge. And every preacher who is being effectively used by God feels this weight upon their shoulders. There is a sense of gravitas that every preacher must face and feel that there has been entrusted to him a stewardship for which he will give an account to God and to Christ on the last day. James 3 verse 1 says, "'Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such we shall incur a stricter judgment, unto whom much is given, 
Much will be required. And for those who have been called by God into the ministry of preaching the Word of God, there will be a stricter judgment on the last day, as we will be held accountable for far more than others. Same standard, but a a stricter accountability, because what God has called us to do affects so many lives. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered, and how you and I carry out our task affects untold numbers of people at the highest level of their soul and their life before God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The we referring to every believer, and there's a divine necessity about the language here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed, be paid back for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Understand this, we are saved by grace, we will be judged by works. And on the last day, as preachers of the Word of God, we will be judged. Every sermon will be audited, every doctrine will be inspected, every interpretation will be checked, every teaching will be examined. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. In an argument from the lesser to the greater, how much more so will we give an account to Christ for the words that we speak. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, Paul writes, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's, referring to the minister, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Not the quantity, the quality. I would rather have a handful of gold, silver, and precious stones than a truckload full of wood, hay, and stubble. And He will test the quality of our preaching, of our doctrine, of our exhortation at the highest level. And what this says, men, to each and every one of us, beginning with myself, we must be God-fearing men. God-fearing men as we stand in the Word of God, as stand in, upon the Word of God and preach the Word of God, and we must seek the approbation of God, not the approval of men. We must seek our amens out of heaven and not the applause of this earth. So that's number one, the seriousness of this charge. Second, I want you to note the substance of this charge. Beginning in verse 2 and extending through verse 5, there are nine consecutive imperative verbs. They they come in rapid-fire succession in, in a staccato fashion. 
And the first verb of these nine imperative verbs is like the topic sentence of a paragraph. It's like the umbrella over the whole, and it is the verb preach. Preach the Word, and everything that will follow will spell out how you are to preach the Word. And it matters to God how you preach the Word. It matters to God not just what you say, but how you say it. But he begins with this first verb, which is the substance of this charge. He says, preach the Word. Not chat the Word. Not share the Word. Not gab the Word. He says, preach the Word. And when to, to preach the Word, it, there is a sense of there, there are elements of fervency and intensity and urgency and authority that are bound up in this word, preach, caruso. It's drawn from the culture of the day. There in Rome, where, Timothy, where Paul was being held, Caesar, it was in a palace, his palace, and he had heralds. And when he would issue an imperial decree, he would summon his heralds to come into the palace. And he would issue to them uh, his eternal decree or his royal decree, and he would dispatch them out into the empire, and they would travel from city to town to village, and they would go into what would be the equivalent of the town square and gather the people around them. And they were to cup their hands and lift up their voice and to say something like this, hear ye, hear ye this day. Rome has won a great victory. Or Caesar has a son. There is now an heir to the throne. They were not to enter into negotiation with the people. They were not allowed to add anything to the message. They were not allowed to withhold any part of the message. And once the message had been delivered, and they were to deliver it in the manner and in the tone that reflected the high authority of Caesar himself, they were to then report back to Rome. There would be witnesses that would travel with the herald, and they were to give an account to Caesar for their faithfulness to discharge the message that had been entrusted to them. And if they had tampered with the message in any way, they were to be put immediately to death. It's the very word that is used here, preach the word, Caruso. And it was the herald's responsibility to publicly proclaim with a loud voice the message entrusted to them by their master. In the theological dictionary of the New Testament, Gustav Frederick has written the article for the word herald. It's a very authoritative, multi-volume Greek theological dictionary. And he writes that the preacher or the herald was to, quote, deliver their message as it was given to them. The report they give must not originate with himself. Behind the herald stands a greater authority. The herald does not express his own views. He is the spokesman for his master. 
Heralds adopt the mind of those who commissioned them and act with the authority of their master. It is not for the herald to act on his own initiative. The herald is bound by the precise instructions of the one who commissions him. The herald does not become involved in lengthy negotiations, but returns to his master once he delivers his message. He is simply an executive instrument. Being only the mouth of his master, he must not falsify the message entrusted to him by adding his own opinions. He must keep strictly to the words and the orders of his master. Close quote. That is exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy. You are but an instrument in the hand of God, and you have been entrusted with the message of heaven, and you must preach the message exactly as it has been given to you, and you may not deviate from this message to the left nor to the right. This is nothing new. If you were to pick up this book, the Bible, and you were to read it from cover to cover, one of the threads that you would discover that runs through the entire Bible is the, is the fact that God has sent men after men after men to preach the message that has, been, has come from heaven. The entire Old Testament was the account of wave after wave of, of prophets who said, thus says the Lord. When we come to the New Testament, it's just more of the same, more preachers. In fact, the Messiah was preceded by John the Baptist, who was a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And God had only one son, and He made him a preacher. And He sent him into this world. And when we read Mark chapter 1, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the word, of the kingdom. Jesus spent 12, or excuse me, Jesus spent three years training 12 men to be preachers. And in the great commission, he charged them to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When you read the book of Acts, the book is really mistitled. It's not the Acts of the Apostles. It is the preaching of the Apostles. One out of every four verses in the book of Acts is a sermon, or the equivalent of a sermon. The first century church was on fire and lit up because that fire was being stoked by the preaching of the apostles. The pastoral epistles are filled with admonitions and charges to preach. The book of Hebrews is but an evangelistic sermon that, that is a word of exhortation. That is a a sermon that was given. It would be impossible to read the Bible and not see the, the primary method by which the message of God has gone forth, but as preaching. Paul tells Timothy to preach. It's the primary means of grace. And he says, preach the Word. We understand what the Word is. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Scripture there, graphe, it, it, it refers to the written Word of, of God, not to visions, not to dreams, not to feelings, not to impulses, but to Scripture. 
In chapter 3, verse 15, it's referred to as the sacred writings. In chapter 2, in verse 15, it is the word of truth. In chapter 2, verse 9, it is the word of God. In chapter 2, verse 5, it is the rules by which the athlete is to compete. In chapter 1, verse 13, it is the standard of sound words. Again and again and again, it is reinforced that the written Word of God is to be the, the, the message that we bring. The preacher has absolutely nothing to say apart from the Word of God. He understands that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And He is to be the means by which God is to speak to His people and speak into this world. And this is the charge that is laid at your feet. If you have been called by God to preach, for heaven's sake, stand up like a man and preach. Lift up your voice. Speak with authority. Let there be fervency and and urgency within you as, as you herald the message. Now, I want you to note third, the specifics of this charge. What follows now are eight imperatives. These define how you are to preach. It is not left up to any one of us here today to reinvent preaching. We may not come up with our own approach to preaching. It has been set for us right here in these, verse, in these verses, and obviously the rest of Scripture will have more to say. This would be the regulative principle for preaching that the Word of God is to regulate our preaching of the Word of God. And with these eight imperative commands, this is not a a multiple choice where we can pick three out of the eight that will match up with me and be distinctive. Each one of these is is like links in a chain, and if any one of these breaks the entire preaching chain breaks. Each one of these are like a a leg of a table that that uphold the whole surface. And so these each are strategic and important. I want to say it again. It matters to God not just what you say, but how you say it. So let's look at these. The first is be ready. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready, again, is a military term. It pictures a soldier who is ready for battle at a moment's notice. His sword is always drawn, ready to be thrust. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you must be always at your task of preaching. You're not to be just a weekend warrior. It's to be your lifestyle. It is to encompass your entire ministry. You're to be always preaching the Word, so much so that he says in season and out of season. That's a colloquial expression for constant readiness. There is no season other than in season or out of season. It's a way of saying to always be preaching, both in good times and in bad times both when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, both when people want to hear what you have to say 
but also when they do not want to hear what you have to say, both when it is welcomed and when it is not welcomed, when it is received and when it is rejected, when you will be applauded and when you will be arrested. You're to be always preaching the Word. Then second, reprove. The word reprove here means to to expose, to expose what is wrong. It's used in Matthew 18, 15 to show a fault. It's used in John 3, 20 to expose deeds of darkness. In John 16, 8, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. In Ephesians 5, 13, it says all things will become visible when they are exposed. And it is the ministry of the Word of God to expose sin. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to expose sin. And in our preaching, it must be a focus that we have to be continually and always exposing sin. It means to expose the heart, to expose the mind, to expose the mouth, to expose the deeds to expose actions, to expose reactions. This is one of the chief aims of our preaching. And if there is no reproof, there is no preaching. Hebrews 4 verse 12 and 13 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. For there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare, open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This must be a part of our preaching, that we address sin that we expose sin in the lives of those to whom we preach. No one will ever be saved until their sin has been exposed. No one will ever be sanctified and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ until sin is exposed. It is one of the primary ministries of the Word of God to expose sin. Romans 3, verse 20, Paul writes, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He writes in Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. And this is in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, that one of the principal ministries of our preaching the law and the imperatives of Scripture is to expose sin. So do you expose sin as you preach the Word? Do you cut to the bone with the Word of God? Is there a filleting of the soul as you exposit the Scripture? And then he says rebuke. 
rebuke is to issue a threatening command. It's to warn of negative consequences. It's a a call for repentance. It is a a call for a a change of attitude and and, and of action. I mean, Jesus preached with reproof and rebuke. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say unto you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed adultery, I mean, you've committed murder already in your heart. And there is a a probing of the soul and then a warning that if you continue with this, you will be cast into hell. There must be rebuke in our preaching. And then the word exhort, parakaleo, it is to, to, to call, to, to summon a, a response to what has been said. It's not enough just to be right. It's not enough just to put the truth out there. There must be a, a, a call to, to respond, a, a begging, an entreating, a, a pleading for a response, uh, an urging of the listener to win them over to the truth. Again, it's not enough that what we say is right and accurate. We, we cannot adopt uh, an attitude as a preacher that we just toss it out there and, and they can take it or leave it. No, we are exhorting, we're calling, we're inviting, we're beseeching, we are entreating. In our preaching, we must be like a lawyer in the courtroom. We must present our case. We must make our argument. We must put the witnesses on the stand, Matthew and Mark and Luke and and John, and extract from them their testimony and enter it into the public record. We, We must present our evidence, Exhibit A, Exhibit B, the resurrection, Exhibit C, the ascension and exaltation of Christ. We must then cross-examine the other witnesses and expose the fallacy of the world's philosophy. But when we come to the end of the trial, having presented our case, we must stand before the jury and we must call for the verdict. And we must be as as persuasive as we can be as we rehearse what we have presented and to call for the favorable verdict from the jury. That's what it is to exhort. I think of Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, arguably the greatest preacher who's ever lived on American soil. And he, he preached in a, in a puritanical fashion and often had the same three headings for his sermon. It was like an overlay for a text. And Roman numeral number one was the exposition, as he would interpret and explain what this text is saying and teaching. And then Roman numeral number two was the doctrine. Every text of Scripture has theology in it. And he would bring out of this text the sound doctrine that is taught here. But then there was the third heading, 
which Edward called the uses, which would be the exhortation, which would be the implication, which would be the application. And one Edwardian scholar has said that in the first two headings, all Edwards was doing was putting the ammunition into his cannon. But it was with the third heading, the uses, that he fired his cannon. And it made me think, how many preachers, how many sermons are spent simply putting the ammunition into the cannon, but they never fire the cannon? It is filled with word studies, cross-reference, historical background, parsing of verbs, sentence structure, etc., etc., but there is never a so what in the sermon. The exhortation is the appeal. The exhortation is the persuasion, the Greek word pytho, which means to win someone over to a favorable response. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, that he seeks to win all men. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, that Greek word pytho, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. If there's no persuasion, there's no preaching. And if there's no persuasion, the reason is there is not the fear of God in the heart of the preacher. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Read through the book of Acts and see how many times you see that Greek word pytho as Paul would go and and persuade his listeners to win them over. But notice how he is to do this at the end of verse 2, with great patience, macrothumia, to remain under in the face of great resistance, uh, to remain under with a forbearing spirit and and long-suffering under trial, because we will be met with indifference. We will often be met with rejection and resistance. I have. I'm sure you have as well. But it must be with great patience and instruction, dedicate. There there must be more doctrine and more teaching and and more theology. 1 Timothy 3.2, we must be able to teach. Titus 1, 9, we must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. Acts 20, verse 27, we must preach the full counsel of God. We must be, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we must be theological expositors. What is preaching, he said? It is theology on fire. And so all of our teaching, excuse me, all of our preaching must be filled with teaching. R.C. Sproul once told me, all of my teaching is preaching and all of my preaching is teaching. I mean, they just all are interwoven together. The more we preach, the more we must teach sound doctrine. And as we preach sound doctrine, we can't just be a, a lecturer or a professor. We must be a persuader and a preacher and seek to win men over to the truth of the theology that we preach. As we come to the next imperative verb, it doesn't come until verse 5. And there is a setup 
for the beginning of verse 5, and it is verses 3 and 4. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul is almost, if you will, baiting the hook before he pulls on the line at the beginning of verse 5. And so in verse 3, he says, for the time will come. Well, that time will come within Timothy's ministry. That time will come as soon as Timothy steps into ministry without Paul standing there with him. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not put up with it. They, they, they will reject it. And the they, at the beginning of verse 3, refers to not those outside the church. It refers to those inside the church. They are the problem. They are the biggest problem, those inside the church who will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled. That, that these professing, believing church members who are religious but lost, they want to have feel-good sermons. They want to have their ears tickled. They want to have honey poured into their, their, their ears. And it says they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire. <laughs> They'll just stockpile preacher after preacher after preacher until they get the one that will tickle their ears. The indication here, almost in a modern-day setting, is that they managed to work their way onto pulpit committees. And they don't want a physician of the soul who can practice medicine. They just want someone with good bedside manners, just someone who can come and make them feel good about their illness. And so they accumulate and stockpile for themselves, they handpick according to their own desires what they want. They don't want the expositor. They don't want the theologian. They, they want the communicator. They, they want the life coach. They want the guru, the life guru. And so when you show up, Timothy, and you preach the Word, and you bring instruction and, and, and teaching, it says in verse 4, and, and Paul's giving Timothy a, 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 a warning of what's out there for him. They will turn their ears away from the truth. And turn away is a, a Greek verb, ektrepo, that, that, that means to, to throw a, bo- a, 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 a bone out of joint. That when you preach the truth, it will be metaphorically as if they so turn their head away from what you are saying, that they will throw their neck out of joint. They'll sit on the back pew. They'll stare up at the baptistry in the wall. They will pull out their cell phone. They will do anything they can but make eye contact with you. And as you preach the Word of God, they will be so evasive, Timothy, it will be like you are invisible to them. And this is the kind of of, of preacher that they do not want what I'm charging you, Timothy, to be. They, they have become such an expert in their own eyes. They're on elder boards. They have worked their way into the infrastructure of churches that they will try to control the preacher. And they will tell him what to preach and how to preach. 
I'm reminded of the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones and people came to him when he went from Wales to uh, London to the Westminster Chapel and they were trying to tell him how to rebuild this church and they wanted all these different programs and all these different gimmicks and Lloyd-Jones had built the church there in Wales on the sound preaching of the Word of God. And so Lloyd-Jones, who had been an eminent physician in his 20s already in England before he was called into the ministry, he said to these church members, when I was a physician, I never let the patient write the prescription. And neither will I start today. You are God's man. And you're bringing God's Word and God's message. And if they don't want it, give them more. That's what Paul is saying. With patience and instruction. Double down on the instruction. So we now come to the imperative verb. Verses 3 and 4 is just to set up what he will begin verse 5 with. He says, but you... And you can almost see Paul as, as he is writing this he, he, it's almost as if he's, Timothy's not there, but he's almost like pointing at Timothy. But you, he, this couldn't be any more emphatic. Be sober. The word sober here carries the idea of being unintoxicated. And he's not talking about a, a, a physical sobriety. He's talking about a, a mental sobriety. You need to be unaffected by, by all of this, Timothy. You need to remain level-headed. You need to, to, to not overreact to their pressure that they will bring to bear upon you. And do not become intoxicated by the spirit of the age. Do not become intoxicated by their pleas for you to alter the, the ministry that you would bring. Do not let them supplant the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God. You remain sober, Timothy. And do not become uh, sucked in to their demands. And the same happens with all of us. I don't have time to walk you through my stories. And I'm sure we don't have time to hear all of yours, but they're real. As people will do everything they can to pull us away from the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God and in so doing to preach the full counsel of God with the standard of sound words and sound doctrine. You stay sober, young man, and do not tickle their ears. Preach the truth. And then the next imperative verb, he says, endure hardship. It means to suffer evil. It means to endure affliction. It means to persevere through, through difficulty. And this clearly anticipates the adversity that awaits you as you preach the Word of God. Paul is in essence saying to Timothy, Timothy, you are going to be both the most loved and the most hated man in town. There are going to be people who name their children after you, and there are going to be people who name their dogs after you. <laughs> and that is the paradox of ministry. When I used to play football, I remember practices where 
I mean, it, it was aggressive. It, it was just head-on collisions. And one day, one guy just had his head almost taken off, and his blood was just coming out of his mouth and out of his nose. And I remember our head coach going over to him and just rubbing his hand in his blood and then wiping it all over his jersey and then saying to the trainer, go get him a game jersey. Nobody gets a game jersey who doesn't have blood on their practice jersey. And there's a parallel in ministry. You don't get a game jersey until you've been bloodied and suffered and had to endure adversity. Let me remind us all what I said to my breakout group at, at 1 o'clock. Calvin only lasted two years in, in Geneva. He arrived in 1536. They ran him out of town in 1538. Only two years because he was preaching the Word of God and fenced off the Lord's Supper. Jonathan Edwards, the, arguably the leader of the, the Great Awakening, he along with Whitfield, after 22 years as the primary pastor and theologian of the Great Awakening, the greatest movement of the Spirit of God ever on American soil, after 22 years he was run out of his church by a 90% vote. Endure hardship. Oh, he endured hardship. He stayed to be the interim pastor. He did. Man, he had so much blood on his game jersey. And then he goes to Upper State New York to work with missionaries after David Brainerd has, has all but died in his arms in his home. And the Williams family follows him out to the frontier and ch brings all kinds of charges of embezzlement against Jonathan Edwards. And he does his greatest work out there, writing the, some of the most profound theological treatises and volumes that have ever been written in America. No, that's just the way ministry is. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who among us would not want to be the prince of preachers like Charles Haddon Spurgeon? He, he suffered through that downgrade controversy and basically died of a broken heart. I mean, he dies in France under the weight and the suffering and the just the agony of just dysfunctional people in the church. Endure hardship. Wherever it is that God's going to send you, there is no easy place. You know why the grass is greener on the other side of the fence? There's more manure on the other side of the fence. <laughs> that, that's why it's greener. It's the only time I got clapping in the whole sermon was, <laughs> was for the scubula. <laughs> Wherever you go, the devil's going to be waiting on you. Wherever you go, the forces of darkness are there. I mean, we just have to make a decision while we're in the locker room that we're not going to give up till the game's over. We're going to have to endure hardship. And then the next imperative, he says, do the work of an evangelist. The, the verb do means to pursue a course of action, poeo. It, it means the, the work. It is hard work. It's the work of an evangelist. 
An evangelist is one who wins souls to Christ. It is one who preaches the gospel and calls for repentance and calls for faith. Every... I remember the time I hit this pulpit on, give us some men who know the truth. (laughs) The dust came up. Um, Like an atomic bomb. They've never vacuumed this pulpit. (laughs) I've got some of MacArthur's hair in here, you know. (laughs) If you want to know where it went. It's like the guy who had a crew cut and then the crew bailed out. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) All right, settle down, settle down. (laughs) Hear this. Look at the context. Every expositor must be an evangelist. You cannot be a true expositor if you do not try to win souls to Christ. They're your preaching and the exposition of the Word of God. Make Jesus the model for your preaching. It was Jesus who said, enter by the narrow gate. It was Jesus who said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart, you shall find rest for your souls. It was Jesus who said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Those are gospel appeals. It was Jesus who said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up a cross and come after me. You you need to have the verb come in your preaching vocabulary. You read Spurgeon, you read Whitfield, you read Ryle, you read these great men of the past. They were continually calling, pleading, entreating men to come to Christ. Do the work of an evangelist. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to his own testimony. This is from the doctor. For many years, I thought I was a Christian, when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see that I had never been a Christian, and I then became one. What I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin, but I never heard this. The preaching we had was always based on the assumption that we are all Christians, close quote. He wasn't even converted until he was in his 20s. He was in a doctrinally sound church. And then when he left the medical community to enter the ministry, he marries Beth Ann, and one of the first people to be converted under his preaching in Wales was his own wife. He married an unsaved woman. He didn't know it. She didn't know it. But she had never sat under soul-searching preaching. And as soon as she did, the light of heaven was shined into her darkened heart, and she realized, I have never been born again. I I love what Beth Ann once said to some men about her husband, Lloyd-Jones. They wanted to know about her husband. 
And she said, you'll never understand my husband and his preaching unless you know two things. Number one, he was a man of prayer. And number two, he was an evangelist. And he used his exposition to win souls to Christ. When Lloyd-Jones on Monday would get on a train and then go out into England and Scotland and Wales to preach, to stand in the pulpits of other young men to help bolster their ministry by his presence in their their pulpit, Lloyd-Jones did not pull the Friday night series through Romans, put that in the briefcase and go out on the road to preach that. And he didn't take the Sunday morning exposition, which was directed to the spiritual growth of the believers, He pulled the Sunday night sermon and put that in his briefcase more times than not because he was an evangelist at heart. Jesus did say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you're not fishing, you're not following. That is why we're still here on the earth, is to take as many people to heaven with us as we possibly can. Do the work of an evangelist. This leads us to the last imperative verb, and I want to give it its own heading, and it's the summation of this charge. Here's the bottom line of everything that he has just said. Fulfill your ministry. Bring to the full, literally, to make full your ministry. Fulfill everything that I have just said to you, which is to say, Timothy, if you are to fulfill your ministry, you must do verses 2 through 5 to this point. To fulfill your ministry, you must preach the Word. You must preach the whole Word. You must preach nothing but the Word. Timothy, to fulfill your ministry, you must reprove, you must rebuke, you must exhort. Timothy, to fulfill your ministry, you must have a clear head and enduring resolve. And you must preach the gospel. And you must seek to win souls to Christ. And the people in verses 3 and 4, it'll be amazing how the trouble will be cleaned up in your church with a few conversions. And you get some of those on the back pew who are nitpickers after you. When they come to faith in Christ, it will be amazing the difference it will make in your church and in your ministry. And one reason we have the troubles that we have in some of our churches, and especially in smaller churches, where one voice can have a disproportionate influence in a church like that, is because we have not been doing the work of an evangelist. And we're allowing... The devil's children were allowing unconverted church members to have way too much sway and influence in our churches, where if we did the work of an evangelist, the difficult, much of the difficulty would be dissipated. So my fellow preacher, does this describe your preaching? Is this how you exposit the Word? Are you unashamed as you stand in the pulpit? 
Do you feel the weight of responsibility to be the voice of God crying in the wilderness? Do you call for repentance? Do you call for saving faith? Are you fulfilling your ministry of preaching the truth? I will end with this, and I have shared this before at a shepherd's conference. After Luther stood at the Diet of Worms, and after Luther had translated the Bible into the German New Testament, and as Luther now was beginning to make waves in Saxony, Germany, and and that, that was affecting even Rome, some people came to Luther and said, how have you done this? You're, you're turning Europe upside down. Uh, the, the, the popery is being shaken at its foundation. How, how have you done this? And Luther said this, hear it again. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then I slept. And the Word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince and never an emperor inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. May this be our testimony that they write on our tombstone. May it just have the date of your birth and the date of your death. And over the top, may it just say, the Word did it all. God bless.